Welcome to Creative Conversations. I'm Roger Humphrey. In this episode, I'm talking with Mary McGuire. Mary is a long-established, award-winning singer-songwriter. Our friendship stretches back many years, and I've enjoyed every moment. We spent some time recently catching up via Skype. I hope you enjoy it. We join in progress. I've been listening to your podcasts. I really like them. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, please... <laughs> My my bad pun. Uh, please please share them because uh, numbers count. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I totally will share some out for sure. Thank you, I appreciate that. It's um, I, I'm having fun with them. They're they're um, uh, morphing into something a little different than what I had anticipated, uh, as these things often do. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so I have um, uh, come up with a new appreciation for people who do this kind of thing for for real and for a living because it's. It's uh, it's it's a little trickier. It's a little bit more of a dance than I thought it would be, but it's fun. I'm enjoying it. That's good. Well, you're I, good. I'm sorry. You're good at it. I'm a I'm a chatty guy. There's <laughs> so good. so, but I, I've always enjoyed um, conversations with artists. Anybody in the arts, acting and and um, music and, and 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 I've always and I hate the the, the typical interview. How long have you been doing this? And what's your favorite color? And it's like, oh God, you know, I just cringe. But um, uh, real conversation about just about anything. Just I just find that artistic people have a, a kind of a unique view of the world. And so I've, I've always enjoyed that. I've got you here for a second. And one of the things I would like to do is take a moment to thank you for the help that you gave me when I was on the island um, and, and getting me started in that wedding business up there. Because boy, I'll tell you what, that was a lifesaver. And and um, uh, and you were a, a big, big, big help. You and Carol Herbal, uh, bless your hearts. If you hadn't jumped in there, I don't know what I would have done. So I thank you for that. Well, we needed you. And uh, funny you should mention Carol Herbal. She's one of the first people that I met on Mackinac Island. Oh. Um, I I came up there late '80s, early '90s, and uh, Uncle Bill. Who we, Bill Corbley, who uh, managed the Pink Pony at the time. Uh, there was a duo named T-Bird and Andy that were from the Virgin Islands, and they were playing at the Pony. And um, T-Bird and I, she was wonderful. Like, we struck up a conversation, and she realized that I played guitar. We talked about, you know, playing music. She's like, why don't you sit in? So I did, and I jumped up on stage at the Pony. And Uncle Bill, as we affectionately called him Uncle Bill, um, heard me playing and Mr. Benzer and Mr. Nephew and they were like wow you should come back up here and play so that was like during yacht races it was the first time I'd been to Mackinac Island as an adult wow. time and uh, because of T-Bird and Andy letting me up on stage and the right people in the room uh, I was invited to come back and play that fall and so I did go back up and play that fall and I was in a duo with Mike Rise okay so, yeah, Mike and I were a duo, and we played at the Pony and Horns. And I'm not sure where we played first. It might have been Horns. It might have been the Pony. I don't really even remember, and I don't know that Mike would remember either. Um, but we kind of just ended up, it was sort of like Kirby and Beans and all those guys. But the first time I came up to play, we stayed in the Red House. 
across from the Bayview Bed and Breakfast, which was okay. where bands used to stay. And I remember um, going into the women's shower room and meeting Carol Herbal. And she was the first person that I um, met and just clicked with. She was just wonderful. She's a great person. And in fact, um, I really just, when she shifted from being a bartender into doing her wedding business, um, I was so excited for her because she's just so organized and good and cool. Oh, all of that. All of that. Yeah. yeah. And Michael suggested that I get a hold of, uh, of Carol, and she was she was tending bar at the Oyster Pub there, and uh, uh, so I went or and, and waitressing, and so so I went over and and met her and introduced myself, and you know, and that's kind of how we hooked up. So that was kind of fun, and so that's that was kind of the start, and then I tried tried doing more, and then you kind of jumped in the middle of it, and said, "Here, you need to do this, and you need to do that," none of which I understood at the time, and so that, sorry. <laughs> It was fun. A lot of weddings, a lot of times. So I'm down now. I'm I'm I'm, I'm trimming back quite a bit. I'm getting old. <laughs> well, you know, I, you know, I think unless you're on the island all the time, it's really hard to make the schlep back and forth and do that yeah. work off island kind of human. And you've got to hand it to those wedding vendors that come back and forth all the time. I mean, I I really do um, admire their their uh, ability to do that. And I know how stressful that is because I was that kind of a musician for the first pile of years that I was up on the island. You know, I yeah. lived in the Detroit area and I drove back up and down. And then you try to book all your gigs around a certain period of time and then figure out the housing to go with it. And housing is always such a thing. And I remember when Barb got the gig working with Jack at Lilacs and Lace. And, yeah. I, and I think that's kind of where we really started to get to know one another. Uh-huh. Uh, when you guys were more full-time up on the island and, and she was managing that and you were playing a lot and, um, you know, we were riding right. our past each other filled with gear. <laughs> <laughs> Guitars, is, backs, you know. <laughs> I was, I, I, I was laughing one time. I, I, I went up to play. I, one summer I had a lot of it, Stone Clip. And, and for people who are listening to that, that don't understand everything on, on, on Mackinac Island is, is, uh, uh, either by bicycle, walking, or 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 horse. Uh, 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 motor vehicles aren't allowed. And so anyway, um, uh, I uh, was up at Stonecliff, which is up in the interior of the island. Um, and Tom Marks used to say, he says, yeah, it takes me half an hour to get here, 10 minutes to get home, because it's all uphill. Uh, you know, all jokes included, it's still all uphill. <laughs> and so That's anyway. Ride with gear. I'm That's sorry. That's a really hard bike ride with gear. Oh boy, howdy! I ain't kidding you. And yeah. I can't, I can't tell you how many times I'd walk. You know, everybody else is in shorts and a t-shirt and got tennis shoes on, and I've got a sport coat on <laughs> and dress slacks, and I'm wearing street shoes, and I'm slogging. You know, and I've got, I've got all of this gear with me, and uh, and I would have strangers just like pull up next to me and go, "Are you okay?" <laughs> yeah, so apparently, I was. I was, I was looking a little purple at the time. <laughs> well, I think it's Jockey Club rest stop, you know. Like, yeah. you, you could get up the hill towards the Grand Hotel if you were coming from that area, you know, if you're coming from that part of downtown. Right. And you get to the Jockey Club and you catch your breath there, and then you get up past the Jockey Club because that's a little bit of a steep climb. I mean, it's just like where the horses rest, so do the humans. Right. right. You get up to that next level, and then you're at Four Corners, and you stand there, and you kind of, like, stop sweating, and your face stops being beet red. 
And then you can hop on your bike and you can flow through the annex to that one hill where the turnoff is to the airport. And then you kind of right. get your life back together there. And then you make it in the snow cliff. You go down and you set up all your stuff down in the grotto or wherever you are at Stonecliff. You know? And it's such a glorious place. By the time you get to Stonecliff, oh um, I think that is such a, a special location in the world, period. I mean, worldwide, to me, the, yeah. the property at Stonecliff is just stunning. And that whole riding, you know, like, if, if you're getting married or even just going there to grab a bite to eat or staying there, you go up that hill and you see the meg the Grand Hotel and then you're behind it and you see all those beautiful carriage houses and the beautiful forest and then you come across this like pristine estate and and just all the charm of it all to me I never will ever in my entire life take that for granted five acres of front yard out there before you get to the main house and and that approach up there um, uh, that one summer um, Becky um, as as uh, got a hold of me as I was getting ready to leave after a wedding, and uh, and she and she was laughing and she said, "I think you're the most photographed person on the island." And I said, "What are you talking about?" And and she said that that um, uh, at the last wedding, and she's noticed it. She'd noticed it before. Um, I would get on my bicycle after the wedding and, and get ready to leave. And of course, you know, you got an old man that looks like uh, Santa Claus, dressed in a suit with a guitar strapped to his back and, and a bag full of gear in the basket on the front of his bicycle. And I, and that's not something you see every day. And people were getting their cameras out. She says, they'd be out front trying to take pictures. Yeah. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he turned around with her phones and taking a picture of this old guy on a bicycle <laughs> as I was leaving. You know, the that in the early days of my time on Mackinac, before we got those really cool bike carts, I used to bring a radio flyer wagon oh. with me. To the <laughs> I purchased my musical equipment based on the dimensions of a radio flyer. So I had the Bose <laughs> speaker system that fits in one part and a PV eight-channel powered mixer that fit in the other, plus my gig bags. And then I could bungee cord the hell out of everything, right? Put my mic stands, music stand, anything else that over, hold it all together. And then I, you know, strap my guitar on my back and I could walk, get off the boat where I needed to go. Yeah. So kudos to all of us for figuring out yes. how to move equipment in a one horse town, you know, or, or a 600 horse town. And then the other thing too, when I would play certain weddings and I knew I had to go far, I mean, you know, as Dr. Bill would always say, you know, you're not in the freight business. And he's darn right, I'm not in the freight business. So I would really count on those horses to get stuff up for me. And that means you've got to plan three hours ahead of time to get something up to Stonecliff. Oh. You've got to take a lot more there. And then all I had to do was hop on my bike with my guitar on my back. So I started doing that, which was a lot less stressful. I don't ride the hill anymore. And when I do go up to Stonecliff, I just take a taxi. And, uh, and But you're right, or the shuttle. But you know, it's it's uh, a forty minute ride going up there and a forty minute ride back. So you've got, you know, an hour and a half of travel time uh just to go about two miles in each direction. And mm -hmm. um it just, just takes forever. And so it frustrates the daylights out of me. But all my gear now, I, I say all my gear, I, I only do the either a little bit of background music or um I do the wedding ceremonies. So I don't need a lot and and because uh, 
Uh, so I have a, a small uh, battery operated um, a cordless uh, PA. It's actually one just, you know, uh, and, and so the battery will last several hours. And so, um, and then it's a, a cordless mic uh, and what, you know, wireless system. So I, especially for the I, Somewhere in Time gazebo, because that was tough for a long time when we performed at the Somewhere in Time gazebo up by on the Mackinac State Historic Park property. They yeah. didn't have electricity out there. So you had to have like a 200 foot extension cord running over to Clark Bloswick's house to get um, <laughs> power for the ceremonies. And, you know, you've got to have some kind of power, you know, or I, some kind of projection because it's not it's just an acoustic guitar doesn't carry enough for everyone to hear it. Right, right. I found, um, uh, I, somebody sent me a picture early on uh, of, of me playing a wedding down in the grotto. And of course, you know how beautiful the grotto is. It's just gorgeous. I'm over by the fountain and, um, and uh, well, it's not really a fountain, but a pool. Yeah, it's a fountain. And so anyway, um, uh, and the, the bridal party's there and the whole thing is absolutely gorgeous. But right in the middle of this, is this great big ugly power cord, orange power cord, dragged across the lawn? And I thought, man, that's got to, that's got to go. You're so funny. I bought that's... a green power cord. <laughs> I bought, a, I bought an outdoor green power cord just specifically for Stone Club, so that there would be no orange uh, power cord there, because you plug into that outlet right by the pond. Right. Which is also frightening, uh, yeah. because you're plugging in <laughs> next to a pool of water. But um, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, what is that called? CFI, you know, right. so it's fine. But um, yeah, and I would try to put myself over underneath the pine tree because you don't want to be in all the wedding shots, you know. So there was a power cable that came to my gear and then there was me, you know, somewhat away from it. And then you have to, you know, bring those speakers in so everybody that's sitting in all those seats can hear. So, you know, right. I have a variety. I had like 100 foot speaker cables, 50 foot, 25 foot. And then I had three different power cables just for Stonecliff alone for ceremonies. Wow! Same and thing. I, I and I do it. I do it all with this little this little speaker. It's a, it's a hundred watt speaker microphone, and uh, and I just play into that. Everything fits into a bag, a gig bag, and the whole bag fits in the in the basket on the front of my bike. So here's I mean, my thing. Do you ever have to sing at a wedding? No. See, that's I, the difference. Because yeah. I have to sing often. Right. I have to end up. Like, I'll play a combination of classical, pop, folk, rock, country, whatever the brides and groom and the parents. And, you know, we run down everything that they want for their wedding um, ceremony to make it very specific for the family and loving. And uh-huh. um, and I end up having to sing a lot more. So there is a little difference in the speakers. If it was just my guitar, that would have been probably a lot simpler. I don't know why I agreed to sing. <laughs> I, I sang at uh, one wedding once. The the groom had written a song and wanted me to sing this at the wedding for for him and his bride, and uh, and I said, yeah, I can do that. Um, and so so anyway, I just uh, kind of set the microphone somewhere between the guitar and my throat, and 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 this is out of, at uh, Mission Point, and uh, and I I broke into that song and I sang that song and I thought Tom Marks was going to tip over. He didn't even know I could sing. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that you sang either. But yeah, I think it's um for me. I think it's I've done a lot of weddings where I have also uh, um given you know accompaniment to someone else singing. I'm sure you've done the same. Oh yeah. You know, my uncle's a singer. My aunt's a singer. And I have to tell you that I have had such great fortune 
to be able to accompany some really wonderful human beings that want to sing, you know, a song for the family wedding, whether it's a kid, a grandfather, the, the, you know, at one time I had an opera singer. I mean, it was like, oh my. you know, you never know what you're going to get, right? Because you never meet till right before the wedding. I, um, I've been fortunate to be able to accompany some really amazing singers and sing harmony with them, never meeting, you know, one hour before the wedding where we do a quick run through and then, okay, we're good to go, you know? Right. And I think only one man throughout the 30 years that I've played on Mackinac um, actually contacted me in advance to have a conversation about what we were doing. Wow. Yeah. I, I've, I've had mixed results under those circumstances. Uh, typically what I will ask them to do is I said, stand next to me, come over here and stand next to me because if they get in trouble, then I can kind of hum along and kind of get them back on track a little bit. And, uh, and I've done that, but I've, I've had, uh, others that have come up and just surprised the daylights out of me. And I've just, just had a marvelous time with it. Um, uh, you know, wonderful, wonderful singers. Uh, I had a, a lady who was probably, no, oh, I don't say, in her mid forties or something like that, or fifties, and, uh, and she was uh, uh, a relative somehow, an aunt or somebody, uh, and she asked, and they asked if she could sing, and I said, yeah, and um, she was marvelous, and it was just a real treat to to sit next to her while she sang. That was great. Yeah, I think what I've found is that mostly, I mean, you know, I'm a sap. I'm so sappy that I still cry. Like my, my face wells up with tears. I get choked up when I see the bride come down the aisle. I can't help it. I mean, just, it's such a, a magical thing for people to commit their lives to one another. And I, um, when I've been accompanying family members, you know, of course they're having the same thing. So we always make a deal beforehand that we're gonna look at each other or we're gonna look up to the sky. And I, I give them cues. You know, when I see them start choking up, I get their attention and I just point my finger up if I can. <laughs> I just put my whole head up and look up. And, and then so we look up and then we don't look at the people so you can get through the moment, right? Because sometimes it's just so emotional. Many brides and grooms have such incredible stories and incredible stories of how they came together, how they made it to that day. And... Um, you want to, you know, you definitely want to lift that up. And, and the more you know, the worse it is, really. Because, you know, the more you know about the bride and groom, the more emotionally involved you are with them. And, and right. it, when you're selecting all the songs and you're sharing lyrics back, like I remember one time I had a bride that wanted me to play um, Strong Enough by Sheryl Crow. And I was like, this is not a wedding song because the lyrics start with, you know, God, I feel like hell tonight. Tears of rage, I cannot fight. I'd be the last to help you understand. Are you strong enough to be my man? I'm like, this is really dysfunctional. So either A, if it's the melody that you like, we can rewrite the words, or we're not going to do this song. And then they finally think about it, and they go, you're right, we cannot have that song. I thought it was kind of cool, but I never really paid attention to the lyrics. You know, like, <laughs> you know? You know I've, only had, I've only had that pop up a couple of times ever. The first was one of the very first weddings I ever did, and it was in Lansing. And, um, uh, and I knew the family, uh, and I knew the family reasonably well. And uh, the mother of the bride uh, said to me as they were planning out the music, she said, uh, can you can you play and sing um, House of the Rising Sun? Because I really love that song. 
And I looked at her and I said, do you have any idea what that song is about? And she, uh, and I could see the blank look on her face. And I said, well, it's about a house of ill repute. And I said, do you really want me to sing about that at your daughter's wedding? And she thought about it. She says, uh, no. And I said, I'll sing it for you privately sometime. But <laughs> I don't think it's going to be appropriate for the wedding. So. Right. I remember when I lived on Martha's Vineyard, they wanted me to play uh, Can't You See by the Marsha Tucker Band. And it was on this glorious horse ranch overlooking the Atlantic Ocean. And the, the bride and groom were hilarious. So he wanted to walk down the aisle to Can't You See, you know, what that woman she's been doing to me. And I was like, all right. And he was dead set on it. So he did. And the whole wedding party and guests they all sang it at the top of their lungs and everyone could sing. It was like a bunch of country rock guys. So, <laughs> so anyway, but, but the coolest part about it is while we were doing Can't You See, because he started it like he, he was in the barn. The grooms were in the barn and I was sitting like down, you know, in this little stone wall area. And they come walking down the stairs and he pokes his window out and starts singing the first verse and I'm playing it, right? And then the whole thing, they come down. And the whole thing is, can't you see, can't you see what that woman's been doing to me? And so they walk up and they get in place. And, and as soon as those guys got in place with the minister and the bride was ready to come up, and for her, I did Shania Twain, um, uh, you know, her big hit at the time um, about love I, I, I'm uh, from this moment. So for her, I right. did this moment. And, and at the same time, all the horses from this ranch came booking right up to the uh, stone wall during the can't you see moment. So I had like 30 horses on my left and the <laughs> grooms coming up on my right and the bride getting ready to come through. And, and I, I swear to God, with the view of the Atlantic Ocean, I'm on this like rolling meadow. It was like, you know, those things you never forget. And you think like that song might have not been the best choice for most weddings, but it was the perfect choice for their wedding. Yeah their story for their immense love for one another and and then when she came through from from this moment i mean i had to look away and stare at horses I, i'll never forget it. i was just staring at this one horse we like locked <laughs> eyes and i'm just staring it down with this horse singing from this moment so i won't choke up and sob like a little baby while you know my job is not to sob my job is to deliver the song you know while it's all going on so i made it i got out it was good it was beautiful but whew, I'm grateful to the horse, and, and I have to say that again, that was Martha's Vineyard, but on Mackinac Island, I am so grateful to all of those horses because they have saved me in a variety of situations <laughs> where I can focus my attention on the horse clippity-clopping and get into their rhythm and play along with them and distract myself from the, uh, the, the heartfelt emotions that well up in me when I play for a wedding. I'm like, gosh. Marvelous. <laughs> I um, uh, I think one of the funniest, I, I've had a couple, we, we've all had, if you played weddings at all, we've all got our stories. And uh, uh, I got a call from a um, wedding planner, uh, event planner, and we're going back about six, seven years now, uh, a wedding over in the Jackson area. And uh, uh, I went ahead and booked the wedding and they had a peculiar request. They wanted uh, the bride uh, wanted to come in to uh, the Imperial March, the Darth, the Darth Vader song from, from Star Wars. Well, you know, that is a thing. That is a very big thing. And, yeah. and so, so anyway, I had never heard of it at the time. And so anyway, 
Um, I said yes, and I went ahead and, and learned a, uh, uh, and then I had to do the music from the throne room for the for the recessional, and so I went ahead and, and I did uh, uh, instrumental versions of these on the guitar. Uh, it took it took a bit of doing, but I got them done. Did you and, write? Uh, you wrote them yourself. You like you figured out how to. Oh yeah. Work for classical guitar. Yeah. Have you released that anywhere? No. You should. Plus, and I, and I just shook my head right up to the day of the wedding. I thought, why am I doing these songs? Well, the the chapel was a beautiful little chapel. I think it had been a church at one time, uh, and it it had uh, had become private property, and and it was a private chapel on this this lovely little place. And so everybody's inside uh, except the bride. And um, and there was a couple of bridesmaids and they walked in from the back and the bridesmaids walked in. The back doors closed and uh, and there's I was supposed to take kind of a beat uh, and then give kind of give me a chance to turn pages because I always read because I, I don't have a memory at all. And uh, and so then then the back doors opened and the bride came in and I started playing that song and the whole room applauded. Half the people in that room were serious Star Wars fanatics. I mean, serious Star Wars fanatics. Right. <laughs> and so it was for that wedding. It was absolutely the perfect, um, uh, just the perfect uh, song. So talk about inappropriate songs. Uh, the, the groom once asked me to play uh, Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You by, <laughs> by Led Zeppelin. Um, I've played so many Led Zeppelin songs for weddings. Yep. Mostly, mostly thank you because it's such beautiful lyrics. But I have done the rain song and Over the Hills and Far Away, and I've played Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You because sometimes it's just the guitar part that they love so much. Right. And it has nothing to do with the lyrics or or anything else. They just like that's a special moment for some people. Well, this was just during the pre-service. They didn't want it during the ceremony itself. Right. Uh, but um, uh, so, but I I do that all of the time. Um, uh, I will, I, I used to, I used to, because I used to do all my weddings on the weekends, mostly, uh, you know, uh, I used to, uh, start hauling out all of the new music on Tuesday. I used, I used to refer to that as new music Tuesday and I'd start, start learning, putting together these arrangements and, and, uh, yeah. uh and, and so, and then I'd have, and I'd work on them right to the last minute. Boy, I'll tell you, it was like right down to the wire. And, oh, I remember like just woodshedding right before a wedding. Oh, and yeah. then before I, like I, I get there early enough so I could woodshed again. I, I think that what I really liked about playing weddings for a long time was because you meet so many people from so many walks of life that have so many different musical um, influences. And so come to a point where I would like give them my song list, my you know contemporary rock, country, right. classical, Mostly I do Baroque. I don't do like hardcore classical stuff, but just Baroque music and, um, you know, I, I, you know, trumpet voluntary, all the usuals, Pachelbel, yeah. all those things, greatest hits. But um, I would also give them the opportunity to have me learn up to three songs for their wedding and then anything else I would charge extra for. So my agreement was I'll, I'll do your wedding and I'll play. These are the songs you can choose from. But if you have other songs you would like me to play, you can give them to me and we'll have a mutually agreeable conversation about the complexity of the song and if I can pull it off in the timeline provided. 
and I would give them three extra songs. And then after that, I would charge extra for the learning because, you know, it's a lot of work to, to score a tune. Oh, man. Somebody. Like if, if I have somebody that really wants me to play, you know, sort of like turn a country song into a classical piece or, you know, something that comes up. I mean, people like, I want this, I want that. And so I've got to take some time to really score it and think about it and, right. and find the music. And most music on the, on the Internet isn't written well. You know, and I don't, you know, I read and I read, I read standard notation and I read tab both, but I, I don't rely on that very much. I rely on my skills as a songwriter and a right. scriptionist to, to pull it together and come up with something that works for them and sounds beautiful that will also not stress me out um, <laughs> under, you know, the obligation of performing for their wedding. So a lot I, of, a lot I of times. make sure I don't become radar from MASH and screw it all up. You know, I, I want to <laughs> deliver the best thing possible so there aren't mistakes. And it's, you know, certainly with Star Wars, they know. Everybody knows those melodies. You cannot mess that melody up. Pocket right. bell, maybe. You get the melody, you can riff around on some chords if it takes a while for them to walk down the aisle. You know how you can take Pachelbel's canon and you can uh, vamp, right? Oh, I have stretched that out to forever. Oh, Perfect. yeah. You know, Ave Maria, Pachelbel canon, there's like all these ways to riff on that and keep it going to make right. it work until the time comes where you've got to end it quickly and then figuring out how you're going to end it quickly when the timing doesn't work out. But, but Star Wars... You know, that is ingrained in people's DNA now. You know, they know Star Wars. They know those melodies. And I think I started playing Star Wars when I was a trombone player in uh -huh. high school. We started playing Star Wars. And then all through when I was, uh, you know, playing trombone in symphonies, we have those Star Wars shows. And it was always like, to, to the classical musicians, it was slumming, right? They didn't want to play John Williams music because it was pop classical <laughs> to uh -huh. them. <laughs> uh, but now they make a lot of money off of having these Star Wars shows and these specific things. But I think as a musician, when people, when the crowd knows the melody, you cannot play around with it. You've got to stick on it and you can do a little variation on a theme, but you've got to stay pretty much close to it. And then the musicians in the wedding audience or whatever audience you're in, uh, they'll recognize when you take that theme and take it to a different place. And they're usually very complimentary about that. That's yeah. what I found. You know, people are good. They they really are. And and uh, 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 and and I've had so many uh, so many fun moments playing weddings. It's so wonderful. And uh, and I met so many wonderful people over the years. Uh, a lot of them, believe it or not, um, I'm still friends with on Facebook. Same <laughs> here. I actually I actually have some brides that. I've become friends with brides and grooms and mothers of the brides that I stay in contact with because we had such a connection and it was such an important moment for their family. And, and it's really nice when they draw you into that whole overall thing and they don't treat you like an appendage, you know, like, right. like you know, it's good. I think, um, yeah, I think that, you know, as a musician, we find all sorts of ways to make a living and we find all sorts of ways to share the joy of music with people. I mean, that's why we do it because it's the joy of music. Oh yeah. Like, you know, we don't have to have work to be a musician. You just are one. And then the work is the icing on the cake. And when people hire us to do a show or a wedding or an event, 
it, to me, it's a very high compliment that they trust us to come into their world and they want to take money out of their pocket and hand it our way to, um, to carry on. Right. And for me, for me, actually, it even goes beyond that when they do all of that. And I agree with every word that you just said, but when they, when I show up and they treat me like, um, uh, I'm an honored guest, like I've done them the favor by coming to the wedding. And, and I, it's like, wow, yeah, it's, 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 it's way different than the way I was treated at the bars I used to play out when I was a kid. <laughs> you can talk to me about playing in bars. Look, I've been treated very well in bars. It's rare that I've had a bad experience in a bar from performing. And I've been playing in pubs since 1970-something, right? Wow. So, um, I found, for me, that playing in bars, I've learned more about life than anywhere else. And uh, I've met... Oh, in- yeah incredible human beings from all walks of life, from all income levels. And I think that, um, I think it's the best education. I mean, I, I love education because clearly I go to college a lot and I'm, I'm actually in college again now, but I, um, I, uh, I think that, um, learning about the human race and learning about people one-on-one, uh, when they're relaxed and enjoying themselves and they include you in their special moments uh, is everything to me. And those are the real connections that I will relish when I can't do anything anymore. I can look back on my life and I can think about all the wonderful people I met, whether it was in a concert hall or a dirty little pub. Oh yeah. And I can feel really good about it. You know, I think that, uh, well, you know, there's stress involved and there's characters involved and there's scenarios that most people would never experience. Um, you know, and people sometimes I think don't believe me when we have a conversation. Oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah, blah, blah. And they're like, what? I was like, oh. So, you know, some people that have worked maybe like just in an office setting without the general public their entire life um, don't have the same experiences when you're thrown out to the human race. They have a whole different set of experiences. It's very interesting and very cool. Right. But when you're tossed out with anybody can come and go from your workplace, uh-huh. that's what a pub is or a bar. Anyone can walk in the door. Nobody's turned away. It's not like we're open nine to five and this is it and you're only here for this specific reason. This is all walks of humanity. And I find that tourist towns offer you an insight on the human race and the good parts of the human race, because the bad parts are very small when you work in that world, right? You remember right. when it becomes comedy. It comes to comedy show. Remember that guy that showed up eating the beef jerky and was so hammered, and there was his wedding night, and he left with the, you know another woman from whatever? You know, like those are horrible moments, and they're rare. But you but that's, remember. That's the thing. They're, they're exceptions. That's yes. not the rule, right? The most of the reason is, is like I can tell you that playing at the Pink Pony or Horns or the French Outpost or any of the places I've played on Mackinac Island, when the room is live and we're all one and everyone's singing at the top of their lungs, that's what carries me through my life. And those are such, such beautiful moments. I mean, I remember Mackinac Island during the blackout, uh, and I. Um, you know, there was rules about everything. The boats, not as many boats were coming through. Everyone was freaking out. We had a 10-day blackout, sort of like a pandemic in a way, right? You know, not yeah. not the same idea, but 
the same amount of closure. Things shut down, things weren't happening, we didn't have power, uh, people were canceling everything, everybody was afraid they were losing all sorts of money, staff were concerned about their livelihood, everything was happening, and it was this 10-day run of fear. And um, the sailors that did make it to the island that came in were also freaking out because they knew this was all going on. They all showed up, we all became one. And I remember seeing hotel owners at night, like walking outside, making sure no one had lit candles in an island made of wood, all wood buildings. There weren't enough firewalls, you know, everybody nervous that their place could burn down if one person blew it. And right. that whole collective experience that came together. And I remember one night, the first night I played at the Pink Pony and I played by candlelight on the stage and the sailors were in there and it was great. And we all had sing-alongs, but it was real hard to hear. And then I remember the next night I played at Horns Bar and Stephen had purchased a generator and it was out back and he got all the food handled and then the kitchen shut down and he connected my my dinky little PVPA through 300 feet of extension cord out into the alleyway behind the bar through the ceiling uh, and we had power and the place was packed and it was filled with all these sailors and we had dry ice chilling the beer and the bottles were popping because the ice was made it too cold <laughs> and everybody was just making it work but the place was absolutely packed to the gills and i remember playing give a little bit by super tramp and the whole place went on fire everyone was singing at the top of their lungs and it was like dark Right, because we didn't have light, and the kitchen had just closed, so the smoke out of the kitchen was kind of filtering through. It was like a film set. It was so bizarre, and I brought some of my own candles, like, on the stage, and I just remember the faces of all these people pumping their fists in their hair, like, give a little bit, give a little bit of my love to you. You could hear it down the street, and I remember the police officers saying they were down at Mission Point, and they could hear horns bar, because, <laughs> you know... It was that exciting. And, and to think, to me, those are those moments of the human spirit that come together around music and make exactly what we do important for sanity. Yeah, I, I it's, it, yeah, music for me has been, well, I, uh, I, I said recently that, that I make music because my soul requires it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and I stand by that. Um, and I think that, that we make music for other people because their soul requires it. Um, and it's just, it's just a connection that we all need. Uh, not just want, it's a, it's a need. And yeah, as a human race, you know, when we're born, we make noise, we cry, we sing, we hum, we coo, we do all of these things. And musicians take that and they develop it into something that's understandable um, and relatable across all of the generations. So you're born and you coo and you cry and your mother starts to understand what that means and you have sort of a language and then you're taught to talk. I, I, but I still think everybody wants to go back to the cooing and go back to the, the sounds and the vibrations that you felt in your body when you figured out how to make a sound and you figured out how to... Um, cry or scream or sing or hum or whatever it is and to me music is the ultimate expression of the human soul there's things we can write there's things we can think but to me 
really, it's the sound of something that is what touches us first. And it's why they use it in films. It's why they use it in advertising. It's why we all will hum a song. It's why we will uh, connect in large groups of when things are stressful. And I think now that we're under this crazy pandemic and you look across social media and you see people sharing their music and sharing their love and you see, you know, it's not about the numbers that are watching it. It's really about the connection of the human spirit because we require it. We can exactly. all make music. You know, we can all make music. <laughs> well, I think, but I think you're right. I think we, everybody can make music in one way or another. And, uh, and, and we all need it. Even if we just hum along, we can, we're making music. So, um, and, and you get people who just like to whistle. You know, I, my, my, my father wasn't, was not much of a musician. He played a little accordion, but boy, he sure did like to whistle. And I know my brother and I both do that when we're just kind of involved in a little bit of task and the room is quiet. You know, I'll find myself whistling, uh, you know, and, and I laugh because it, I, I know right where it came from. It came from my father, but still making that music, it's got to be there. I love that you whistle. My dad is really good at whistling, but he doesn't sing or do those sorts of things. Um, but he's really, really good at whistling. And his father was a piano player. And uh, my family has a long history of music. I've been actually hanging out on Ancestry.com lately. My cousin Steve gave me a um, DNA thing, so I did it. And I've been reconnecting back to all of my roots. And it's amazing to me how many musicians that are in the family over all of these years. And it's really exciting to see that because I feel somewhat... Uh, like I am part of something in my in my own DNA. I when I was putting this podcast together, and I'm you know making a mental list of of of, of who I'd like to have on as a guest, and uh, and of course you you immediately go to the people you know, right? It's the low hanging fruit, and and uh, and so I'm I'm looking at my immediate circle, uh, a cousin of mine who who, uh, and then I thought well. Her sister is a published and award-winning poet. And then I was thinking about my niece who just graduated with her master's from Tulane and she's a ceramic artist. Actually, I just did a, uh, did a um, episode with her a couple of weeks ago. And, and, and it occurred to me that my whole family or a good chunk of my family is very artistic. I can name a half a dozen other people off the top of my head that I'm related to in this, this generation or the one before. And we're not even talking about, you know, generations earlier than that. And I thought, wow, it's, I, there's a lot more artists in this family than I realized. <laughs> there's a bunch of us out there. So, uh, and, and I guess that's maybe one of the reasons why I've been attracted to it. Just the, the, the process of creativity, either creation or recreation. And, uh, uh, and it's, it's, it's kind of cool. My first gig was really playing guitar at La Salette Church in Berkeley. They had a folk mass, and my friend Lynn Drum and, and Sherry, uh, all the people in that group, taught me how to play guitar. Like, I wanted so bad. I was a trombone player from being, you know, in school band. But I saw this guitar play, this guitar group at church, and I really wanted to be a part of it. And, you know, talked to my parents about it, talked to my grandma about it, you know, and they're like, yeah. And I went up, and I asked them if I could join, and they're like, can you play guitar? I'm like, not really, but I'll learn. And they're like, okay, you're on next Sunday. So 
my dad my dad took me to music strings and things in Birmingham and I bought a classical guitar from a, a dear friend of mine now his name was Cliff Gracie um, bought that I got home and I busted myself to learn how to play like I am the bread of life right but I couldn't play B minor that was too hard it was a bar chord I didn't know how to do that and uh, <laughs> ended up you know learning by um, by doing on the guitar and was so dedicated to playing in the church uh, and the Catholic Church in Berkeley uh, with all of my friends there and made dear friends out of that over the years. And I remember uh, I would ride my bike. So Cardinal Dearden was the, the cardinal for the Detroit area and he lived in Palmer Woods and I lived in Huntington Woods, which was just a couple miles away from Palmer Woods, like three mile ride, bike ride, 11 mile to eight mile, right? And I remember that um, the church was having a really hard time, again, with, like, what kind of music can be secular music? What, is, what, what do we do in the church? Like, there was the big fight because they had just clipped the mass from being Latin and that caused a ruckus. And then all of a sudden, all these 1960s and 70s hippies are playing guitar in the church, and we're an organ, you know, oriented <laughs> space. And so I remember riding my bike. I had a, a three-speed, uh, speaking of, this ties it all back to our Mackinac Island experience, you know. Um, I had a three-speed green Montgomery Wards bicycle that actually Trish Martin at Bogan Lane Inn still has that same bike that I had. It was like, and I would take my guitar and I would strap it to my bicycle and I would ride it down Cardinal Dearden's house. No appointment, because I was like 13, right? So I was bold. I didn't know what an appointment was. I'd knock on the door at the Cardinal's house in Palmer Woods, this mansion, this Tudor mansion. And uh, the man, the butler guy, would come to the door. And I'm like, I'm here to see Cardinal Dearden. and I want to see if we can play Morning Has Broken in church. <laughs> and I remember sitting in the little lobby there with my, my little Yamaha guitar and me, and like, I'm so bold, right? I'm so excited because I know he's going to love it. And I've got the lyrics all written out because Father George told me to write down the lyrics. So I've got my little spiral notebook with my handwritten lyrics to Morning Has Broken. And I think I'm like a little genius, like I'm going to get permission because the other priest, Father Zaleski at our church, wouldn't allow me to play that song in the guitar group because he said it needed approval because he was the administrative priest. So I... Cardinal Dearden comes out, and I'm like, all organized, like I'm like a teenager, you know, like 13. I'm like, Cardinal Dearden, it's so nice to meet you. I, I want to play this song for you and make sure we can play it at Lost Lake Church in Berkeley, and we're at 11 Mile and Coolidge, and, you know, like I'm <laughs> running it all down like I'm a marketing <laughs> genius, right? And he, I play him the song, and he was so nice. He just, like, smiled at me, and he said, you know, the lyrics from that song, because I'm thinking it's Cat Stevens that wrote the song. Right. He goes, that's from the 16th century. Those lyrics are completely fine for you to use in church, and I think the melody is beautiful. So, yes, you can play that song in church. All right, Mary. <laughs> I hop on my bike. I ride back. I'm like, victory. And then I go back down, and I try to, to bring him, like, um, Neil Young, um, when the dream came, I held my breath with my eyes closed. That song. And he's like, no, you can't have that song. And then I go back, and I come back with teacher children from Crosby, Stills, and Nash. She goes, 
yes, I like those lyrics. You can have that song. So it was such an interesting time because, <laughs> you know, in the, in the early mid seventies, it it wasn't a thing, and there were rules about you know the music in the church and right. I felt like I was like bold enough to be a nutcase, and I was the guinea pig for everybody. They were just like, "Okay, hop on your bike, go see Father, <laughs> go see Cardinal Dearden, and see if he says okay to this song." You know, so um, I that's, think that uh, the world that we grow up in, and and the way that we approach music, and and when we do it with purity and innocence, um, it it means something to people, and only a creepy, crabby person wouldn't get it. I, I think you're right. I think that that the, the, the your exuberance and your innocence, uh, and and really, I mean, you were right up front with what you wanted. It wasn't like you wanted anything sneaky or anything like that. And you know, and you're right. The lyrics are just fine. So everything's <laughs> everything's terrific. But it's kind of nice to you know, kind of do an end run around some of the other people and go right to the Cardinal. That's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty gutsy. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you know what the whole thing was, is I think I got kind of put into a pawn position, you know, between the priests, because, you know, at any church, you've got priests that are the administrative, follow the rules people, and you've got the priests that are the, like the, you know, as I can say, the Loyolas or the Jesuits that, that feel like you become part of the community and you you want to help people out and like what's the hang up and why would you do that and all that and I was you know no one was going to pick on a 13 year old girl I mean maybe they would have but you know it would have been really awkward you know I, I didn't have that experience and so I felt so part of the real the the sort of moral of the story is because of those early days and those formative days of me playing guitar and not being very good, but being bold enough to go and ask for permission, knowing who to ask permission to, um, you know, prevented me from a lot of stress. And then, you know, taking that and practicing and learning stuff and realizing like, like you do, you know, you, somebody says, Hey, it's a really simple ask. For someone to say, I would like to walk down to the aisle to the cantina scene in Star Wars. Can you play that? Yeah, sure. I can. I can pull that off. You know, for me, like somebody says, Hey, I want to. I want to see if we can play "Morning Is Broken" in a folk mass, and or can we play "Time in a Bottle" because we've got all these Vietnam vets that you know, Vietnam guys that are dying. And we've got to play a funeral on Saturday, and that's what the parents want, but the administrators at the church are saying no. You know, like. How do you jump over those hurdles as a musician? I feel pretty darn blessed to have had some good guidance and some bad guidance, but for the most part, I feel like I've had some good guidance over all the years to figure out how to make it all work for us and and, and how to you know uh, make a living at being a musician and um, know when to cut and run and uh, you know and uh, not suffer because it, it really is a sufferable occupation. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you would like to know more about Mary or if you'd like to hear her sing, please go to marymaguiremusic.com. The link is in the description. I want to thank Mary for taking the time to appear and I want to thank you for listening to Creative Conversations with Roger Humphrey.